Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm your host, Rafe Kelly. At Evolve Move Play, our aim is to help you cultivate a more meaningful life and a more heroic self by reconnecting deeply to movement, mindfulness, nature, and community practices. This podcast was created to bring the best and brightest minds in all of these subjects together to better understand how we can create an empowering and sustainable ecology of practices for personal growth. If you're interested in being part of this ongoing conversation, the best way you can support us and get involved is by joining our Podcast Plus membership. By joining, you will get backstage access to our live podcast airing once a month, as well as a private question and answer session with me and our guests after the show. On top of that, you'll get access to our thriving online community where you can continue these deeper discussions with people all over the world who are just as passionate and curious about these topics as you. More details about the membership as well as the link to get signed up are in the description below. And whether you can join, be sure to like, share, subscribe, and hit that bell icon so that you can be notified every Monday when our episodes drop. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. This week, our guest is Katie Bowman. Katie Bowman is the author of multiple books on natural movement from a biomechanical perspective. She's one of my favorite authors, one of my huge influences in understanding natural movement. And this time we're going to be discussing mostly her book, Grow Wild, which is about how we think about restoring movement to the lives of the children in our culture and how movement impacts children's development. So I read this book earlier this spring. I think it's a fantastic book. I was really excited to get the chance to speak to Katie again. We hadn't actually sat down for a conversation since 2016. You can go back and check out that conversation if you'd like. Um, but yeah, she's someone who I have an incredible appreciation for. I think her work is incredibly important in throughout the movement perspective. So really excited to bring you my conversation with Katie Bowman. So Katie, welcome back to the Evolve Movement Play podcast. It's a pleasure to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you again. So I really love how you start the latest book, Grow Wild, which is going to be one of the main themes that I want to talk to you about today, um, which is this analogy of how trees are grown in nurseries. So I want to just ask you, how is a child like a tree? And let's start from there. <clears throat> well, yeah, I, I, I centered this book. I, I, I think one thing that I tend to use a lot when I write are non-human um, analogies, because I feel like when we can see a sort of like a natural rule applied to something that's not human, it's easier, like it removes the ego out of it, like to try to grasp it. So I often will use other animal examples. Um, and so I chose to go with plants or trees really for grow wild <clears throat> because there's this with plants, it's pretty well understood this phenomenon called thigmomorphogenesis, which is this idea that, you know, a, a plant has its genetics and I touched upon it in move your DNA too. Like we have our genetics and a tree's genetics are going to tell you um, what that tree is going to look like enough to make it recognizable, right? You know, yeah. it's bark, it's leaves, it's, it's um, even where it lives is really all contained in its genes, but, but it's, individual shape, you know, the way it branches, the, um, and, and how it grows is really environment informed. And so that includes things like access to sunlight and nutrients and, um, you know, what's, what it can get from the ground and from the sky. And it has to grow in a way that 
um, is sort of competing for those things, but it's also growing. The Thigma morphogenesis part is it's also growing in response to the loads it experiences. So it has to be strong enough to withstand the winds that come through an area, you know, and there's parts of the planet that are more windier than others. There's parts within your town that are more windier than others. And those winds tend to go in the same direction, right? Like there's, there's winds to landscape. Um, there's snowfall based on where you are. And so trees, because, especially because they're so large, they have to, they have to, their shape has to allow them to succeed in light of those physical forces that they have to withstand. Um, and so even the way that their roots will grow, it's, it's to anchor the tree, the way that the, the trees will branch is to um, make it successful to bear the weight of snow or other animals. And, but it's not that, that the fact that it can do that is in its genes, but how specifically it does that is based on what loads it experiences. So it has to feel the wind in order to put down the roots in the direction of the wind. It has to feel these things that load it um, to be able to grow in a way that allows it to be successful in that particular environment. And so we are like that too. And that is a, we don't call it Figma morphogenesis, but, but the, you know, we just think sort of like, oh, we need to exercise to be healthy, but it's like more specific to why the tree needs it in order to be successful in the environment that it's in. Um, it has to feel what that environment feels like so it can lay down the roots and scaffolding, if you will. So for us, that's, you know, our bone densities and our bone, it's a bone robusticity. It includes shape, not just the density, but the shape of our bones. I mean, and all of our bones are recognizable enough. Like we know what's a rib and what's a thigh, but it's actual specific geometry is based on how we were moving as we were growing up. Um, you know, how, what our active positioning or inactive positioning looked like. And so when you grow plants and I, I to stay on with trees, like when you grow trees in a greenhouse, the greenhouse really is trying to isolate or it's trying to, what is it trying to do? It's trying to remove a lot of the external things that are damaging to trees, cold, bugs, you know, like you can control it. But what they found when growing a lot of things in greenhouses is they also accidentally remove the movement that a plant needs to inform how strong it's going to become. So you get plants that are strong enough to live only in greenhouses simply because they are strong enough to withstand that mechanical environment of a greenhouse, which is no wind, no snow loads, nothing climbing on it or pulling on it. So you get these trees that when you go to transplant them outside, they all fail, right? So what they figured out for growers, plant growers is like, oh, we accidentally removed all the movement. So they've got things that they've got new technologies like, okay, well, well, it's not new technology. We need to bring a fan in here so that we can create winds so that as these seedlings are growing into trees, that they're used to bending, that we, re that we get them stronger scaffolding so they don't fail when we put them out into the environment that's not this sort of hyper-sterile environment. Mm -hmm. um, we need people to actually go touch and bend 
all of the plants. Like there's all these ways that growers are coming up with it. How to solve the, there's no movement in the greenhouse problem. And we've done that, but we haven't really done that for people yet. Um, we don't think of it in those terms, but if you think about it in those same terms, it makes more sense. Like, oh, I need to get my kids out early into outside, outside. I mean, we can just say, we can just call it outside. So yes, it's movement, but it's really the, the, the movements that would be found outside. And as we'll probably discuss, many of them can be brought inside and done in inside yeah. environment too. But um, it's just that when you remove all of the physical forces, like really that's what our homes are. They're the same as a greenhouse. They're, mm -hmm. they're trying to protect, they're trying to remove the outside elements that are pro problematic for us. Um, it's just that a problem has become for us discomfort. Like it's not death or, you know, it's, it's just like, it's mild discomfort. We're like even trying to protect us from. And so we're just, we've gotten these kids now coming into these greenhouses and it's not even their homes. It's like every space that they'll be in is essentially another greenhouse, another version of a force-free, movement-free environment. And so yeah. that's, that's where we start the book is to say, even, and I guess one more piece is even trees that are strong enough to withstand the greenhouse don't thrive because there's something about the outdoor shape that our body still needs to survive. So like, I could see one argument is like, well, if we're only going to be inside, then it doesn't matter if we don't have outside scaffolding, yeah. but it's like even indoor plants start to fail because they need outside living things need outside. So now that we know all this, it's like, how do we start changing our greenhouses to let more movement in? And then how do we start? Um, we'll talk about this idea of hardening off plants so that they can be more successful in the outside. And how do we do that as individuals and as parents or other people in charge of spaces that contain children. It's a couple of examples. And with my older daughter that popped to mind for me, one is when she was probably a year and a half old, something like that, we took her out to a playground and there was a slope. There was a, um, like just a, a dirt slope and she started walking up the slope and it was really shocking how challenged she was by the slope. All of a sudden sure. it was overwhelming for her. And so we recognize that like that, that we've taken away this element of slopes, right? Right. This element of unevenness of the ground. And so as this child is developing her locomotor abilities, she's not getting hardened off to all of the elements that the outside contains. And another one that I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on is my, my oldest daughter, when she was little, she would habitually W sit. And we talked, you know, there's a lot of physical therapists who are saying, you have to discourage kids from, from doing this. This will interrupt their gait cycle. And indeed we saw with Audrey, when she started running, that she didn't have very good coordination between her arms and her legs. But I was not big on the idea of like, there's a wrong way to sit. Right. right. Um, but what I recognized was that we moved her from an indoor preschool to an outdoor preschool. And all of a sudden she she started adopting a much wider range of sitting techniques because so it turned out she could habitually sit in a W sit all the time on a carpeted flat floor. Right. But when you added all these other textural things, that, that habitual seated posture isn't comfortable all the time. You have to adopt a wider variety. So it was, it wasn't so much that the ideal thing was to, to try to get her to go away from what was natural for her, 
but to provide a wider variety of stimulus. So I'm curious, like, have you run into that specific issue of the W set? And I mean, is, is this how you approach it with, uh, with people when you're talking about the biomechanics of that? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I've covered that in one of my books, I think specifically, but it's, it is this idea. I mean, and it's, I, I would say it's probably the same thing you'll hear talking to adults sitting in an office chair or your daughter sitting in a W sit. Um, we're just, we're so slow to adopt a more movement approach that we're really sort of stuck on the um, optimizing stillness approach. Yeah. Like we can't really break that therapeutically. It's like, well, so yes, the, the W sit is problematic because prolonged taking of it, especially when you're younger, um, changes the shape of your bones. Like it, it's, you know, like again, in movie or DNA, we're talking about this idea of you're, you're, you're throwing your bones around by how you move. And so their ultimate shape becomes informed by, by how you move now, like, it might be helpful to know that, like, I really consider you're, you're never not moving. You are always moving when you get down to the nitty gritty. It's just that our, you could think of it as positioning, like the positional environment as being something that's moving the body on a cellular level. So it's the same way. And I think we actually even talked about it when we were in person. It's like, yes, the W sit is problematic. So the idea is like, let's get kids sitting in a different way. But it's also like we have different natural resting positions to us, but they only become, I'm going to make up a word, hyper volumic, like too much, of, yeah, yeah. like too much of something when the environment doesn't naturally promote any sort of change of it. So yeah, you're not going to see, you're going to see like, as you are one, just walking more because you're moving from environment to environment or two, having to take rest on not always a carpet or something smooth and comfortable, you're going to see that it gets naturally that, that your shape transitions naturally because you're just done with that shape for right now. And so it's like, it is this idea of like moving more or modifying the environment to not make a single position so comfortable on our bodies, because really, I don't think that any position is problematic. That's never really been what the problem is. It's about the volume and about the context that you're taking it in. And so we've just we just sort of veered down that sort of simple, let's optimize our stillness positioning to me, which is really what ergonomics is. Like ergonomics yeah. is really like trying to find the optimal position for you to be still in. But I think ultimately there isn't one. And you're going to keep seeing, like there might be one that's better for a period of time for certain bodies, but it's just such a limited way to pursue a problem when we know so much about how much movement we need and how bodies form. So like, yes, I would just say, um, you know, I would say that you can, like, I, I'm, I'm, like what I'm trying to think is like, if I had a W sitter, which I don't, I have um, nieces and nephews who are like, I wouldn't necessarily, um, you know, say stop sitting like that. I think it would be more like, okay, time to sit this way or, or just, disrupt the sitting experience in some way. So like one that there is not, there's less volume of yeah. sitting. Um, so yeah, like, I think we're on the same page with that. Very good. So you organize the book around this idea of a series of containers that mm -hmm. 
that behavior essentially is within. And, you know, one of the containers we were just sort of touching on is the container of the home and the home space and how that can uh, encourage movement or discourage movement. So why don't we stay on that theme for a little bit and just talk about how the homes that we currently have in our culture are kind of set up to optimize stillness and to remove as much kind of potential for movement as possible and why we might want to move away from that. Well, and it, yeah, well, and I think it's, they're not set up to optimize stillness. The stillness is a side effect of how they're set up, which is to optimize comfort, Yeah. right? Because I don't think, I don't think any of us are really thinking we should, we should set up this house so we don't have to move. So I, I, I want to just change the way it's framed simply because you will probably be a lot more used to in your head cycling through what would be more comfortable or easier on your body it's not necessarily seeking out how to move less. That's just the unforeseen consequence, just the natural byproduct of comfort because movement is, it's uh, like, again, this would be like a definition. It's, it's, it's not, I don't think our body sees it as discomfort. Our body sees it as not being able to conserve energy. I think ultimately how your body is choosing to organize it has to do with how little energy can I expend? And so expending energy feels uncomfortable because you're working against your natural program to conserve it. And so I think that that's sort of the background programming that is also paradoxically in our DNA that's working against us. So um, yes, it's like we paradoxically need a ton of movement, but we're also always seeking not to do it without realizing it. I mean, you can, you can willpower yourself out of it, but I mean, you're always choosing sort of the conservation pathway, unless you, unless you're kind of overriding it with your choice, you know, and usually it's because you believe that movement is healthy for you, that you can make that choice to do more rather than less movement. Yeah. So I think this, uh, it's interesting to dig into because I, I think, um, I think I would lean to thinking that our houses are actually designed in some sense to optimize stillness, that it's not just about comfort and, and seeking to avoid energy because I read your book this spring and, you know, we, we, we've been doing this for years, but after reading the book, it kind of reminded me like, okay, let's really lean into this. And we just moved to this new house. We have a beautiful yard. So we started having all our meals outside. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that happened was that our kids would immediately get up from eating and start climbing things around the yard. Oh, right. Yeah. Right? So by changing the, the, the environment in which their behavior was happening, the same behavior started to, to invite the children into more movement. And so I'm, I've been, I've been very interested in um, ecological psychology recently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ecological psychology is basically a, about the idea that we, our behavior is very much, conditioned by the ecology that we're within, right? What is afforded to us? So when we design a space that affords movement, people will intrinsically be attracted to moving. When we design a a space that affords entertainment through screens or entertainment through other things, that that actually changes the incentive structures around behavior. So I think obviously we do have a desire to, to, to limit our energy exposure, 
but we also have intrinsic movement drives, right? Like if you, if you sit people in a chair for a long time, they're going to start moving their arms. They're going to start, they're going to feel that sense of stagnation. Um, but if you make it very soft and a very soft environment and something that's very compelling for them to be paying attention to, then they can forget the need of that body to move. And like, I find myself just as a, as somebody who's working on my computer in my office with my kids in, in the next room, like we designed our living room basically as a play space for them, but they'll invade my office to play. I'm like, I don't want you to play in here because it's too disruptive for me. And I understand that as adults, um, a lot of times we're, we're trying to manage the disruption that children's play um, involves. And so it seems to me that part of the design of the house is actually to like, and, and so many people are just trying to keep their kids from getting in their hair is what it feels like to me. So I'm curious for your thoughts on that. Well, I mean, I don't think that's different than what I was saying. Like, I don't think that you and I are necessarily saying opposite things. But again, I would say that what is the disruption when your children get in your hair? Like, like what does that mean? Or what is it? What is it? I, I would, without realizing it, I think that we are seeking the byproduct of ease, even in the sense of parenting ease stillness, mm -hmm. less of my attention, less of my attention to go to you. So like a lot of the things that we do are to minimize simply even the interaction because the interaction takes you away. It, well, one, you have to put your energy over here and maybe you choose to put it in your choosing to put it in other places. And, and it's not to say that the place that you're choosing to put it in isn't an important one for like the survival of yeah. your entire families, but it's just to realize, to really tune into how so much of what we're doing. And so comfort, like I would even expand it besides padding the idea of cushioned everything, let less of you overall, less movement, less attention, less having to deal with injury, less having to deal with noise, just less. Like mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're creating it so as to minimize how much of us like really has to show up to and in, in be involved in, in what's going on. And, and when it comes to kids, I mean, I do think that a lot of the rules that we have around rules, house rules for movement, house rules for quiet, a lot of that I think is informed culturally. I mean, the culture, like you talked about containers, I yeah. chose culture and I know you have anthropology, like your anthropologist yeah. background. So you could probably really relate to why I chose to do that because a lot of it is culturally informed because we have to participate still in a society that has certain expectations for how children are and how they move. And we really perceive kids that are moving around a lot as problematic children mm -hmm. and thus having parents that are potentially problematic in the fact that they didn't do this thing right because they're not matriculating well into, yeah. you know, society or whatever. So I, I think it's, I do think that we need to look around and be like, wow, a lot of our just simply at home time has been made to be more sedentary. And, you know, again, we're not only talking about like running and bouncing off the walls, but simply just not sitting, like just not sitting still doing very little, like this idea, like you can have movement while someone else is still being productive. Like kids can be on a computer doing school and still be moving more than they are right now. Like the idea that you have to remove all movement in order for them to execute these 
operations that we're saying that they need to do to fit into the household or their larger community or their larger culture. Like even those don't have to be as sedentary as they are. There's a lot of wiggle room for movement, you know, sort of speed. Yeah. There's a a lot of space that we could be making improvements and still not even be pushing up against the culture yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Obviously as a anthropology background and as a kid who was diagnosed with ADHD and taken out of the school system, um, I definitely, and, and also parkour, mm-hmm. right? Like one of the big realizations yeah. we had early on with parkour was how much, you know, the culture is, is, is telling you not to move. Sure. Right. We see signs all over the place. Don't run, don't jump, don't climb, don't rough house. In, in England, you see signs all over saying no ball sports. You'll see signs saying no parkour. So I have the sense that, um, that our culture is very anti-movement. And, you know, as we were, we were talking, this is something that, that occurs to me quite a bit, but, um, like the reason I don't want to be disrupted by my kids during the work day is because I'm trying to work. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I, it, it, I want to be able to focus so that I can get my work done. And I mean, I, I, I'm passionate about my work, whatever the, the financial outcome of the work is, it's still important to me. But one of the things that I've thought about with, in relationship to our current system, and, and I, I like capitalism a lot in, in, in a variety of ways, but it, it tends to, to move us towards specialization, mm-hmm. right? If you have a comparative advantage, spending a little bit of spending, uh, comparative advantage in any one activity, you want to spend as much time on that as possible. And that's how the economy grows and the production of capital as much as possible. So if I can give my children to someone who has a comparative advantage in childcare so that I can leverage my one comparative advantage, then there's more money created in the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, I think this is deeply dehumanizing. Right. And I feel like I'm struggling to articulate what was in my head there, but to me, it comes back to an idea that I've heard you say as well, um, which is that I, I kind of look at natural movement as a, as a sort of human permaculture. And I think that a lot of your ideas are, are inspired by permaculture, I've heard you say, and, and revolve around that too, that, that the way that we move isn't just about the health of our body, but it starts interacting with all these other systems. And all these other systems are, are, are pointing at the way that we move. So when we point at this problem of a, of a sedentary culture, I think part of that is about creating people who have their attention completely on their productive task or completely on a consumptive task that is reliant on somebody else's production that is represented as capital. So I wanted to hear you talk a little bit about, yeah, I mean, how you see our culture as, as, as relating the movement. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, it's, I mean, I, so economics is not my strength. I mean, I have like a, I would say minimal, minimally okay. acceptable <laughs> understanding of economics. Yeah. I mean, I understand the main systems and the different systems. Um, so like, I, like, I think when I hear people talk, I think in terms of shapes, pictures, containers, like that's why I organized the book the way I did. Cause that's how I see that, I mean, like, that's how I think I, mm-hmm. it's like about what is sitting inside of everything else. 
So let me just start with like what's coming up for me as you're talking. Yeah. So the first thing, and like that's sort of how you're doing it too. I feel yeah. like it's sort of like this makes me think of this. So again, I don't think we're an anti-movement culture. And I and I I can't clarify it right now, but I think there's an importance of understanding the order of things. Mm-hmm. So like I don't think we're like setting up on purpose a culture where movement is not allowed. Like, why do we have no ball playing, no parkour, no skate? Like, why are those signs there? They're not there because people don't think, even leaders or rule makers, law enforcement, because they do not think that movement is beneficial or fun or would be valuable. They're usually making them because of like safety and litigation purposes, right? So, so that's an aspect of culture that I'm not sure where that falls, but I, in the term, like, I feel like that must relate to some economics, some economical systems, perhaps even, because I think that the penalties for litigation are ultimately capital, right? Yeah, like, sure. you know what I mean? Like you're, you're not going to be, people aren't going to jail as much as they're losing money. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense where you are in a uh, economy, like, I don't, I mean, I'm just trying to think of like, can economies ever be dehumanized? I just think that there are economies that might not be as sustainable. And, and I, and then like, you're actually watching me and like my wheels are turning right now. <laughs> and like, this is like how I feel when I go into a class, like, I'm like, yeah. I'm going to fail this quiz or else <laughs> I'm going to get a C minus. So yeah. So anyone who has criticisms, like you can just send me things I should read. Um, but I, I think that they're all humanized because we've created them. Like, right. We're trying to create a system that serves as many people as possible and allows as many people as possible to be successful. I mean, I think that's what economies are sort of for like they're human like they're they i mean there's different i'm sure there's different i'm most familiar with traditional economies and how those would work um um, and so like this is this is different but but it's this idea that i think we are and i think it like turns of biology it's like we're selecting we're selecting what benefits the economical system rather than what benefits the humans that drive the economical system. So, so like when I choose to select for sedentarism, then I can get a, I can get an economical system that has the advantage, but sort of over the people. And the reason I'm saying it's not sustainable is because the people are the ones sort of driving that economical system. So Mm -hmm. at some, and I just got done writing a paper where I, what I'm really trying to say is economically, this global population that is currently sedentary as a byproduct to progress, like as a byproduct to actually forward thinking, progress, development, better economies, what we're seeing is a huge rise in expense and strain on a medical care system because why we selected for sedentarism and it seemed to like make the economy like where everyone could focus, like, like give your kids to the person who's really good at kids and you do the thing that's really good at making money. And then like, this will all work out perfectly is 
what we're seeing is the growth of the ma sedentary masses around the globe. And that is very expensive. Mm -hmm. And so it, you can only really evaluate a system when you look at all the parts, like the ecology of it. So one of the side effects of like industrialization and the successes that it has brought is it simultaneously has, I'm gonna say accidentally, cause yes, you sitting in a chair and having everything removed from you so you can work. I don't think you really went through a list of what <laughs> pros and cons of what yeah. that would cost. Like no one's really doing that. You're not actually making an informed choice about it. It's just how the yeah. world is. So you end up with like this growing backlog of people not, not moving. And so even economically, you got to consider that to see like, well, how is the economic system doing overall, given this ever rising increase of cost to, to deal with this massive side effect to these other positive things? And so, um, yeah, like that's like, again, this is not an economy class. This would be just, this is just my how yeah. I tend to see it. Like I see it in shapes. Like I see some things floating and growing and improving. Like I can see the improvements. I can see the improvements that we have made for humanity. I can see that. And at the same time, I can see this other problem getting bigger and stronger and more complex. And so it's like, okay, well then what we need is to figure out how to replace the movements. Like there's plenty of movements to add back in that don't disrupt the, the benefits that we have also managed to create. Like I'm not a big fan of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not saying that this is a, I don't think that this is a problem inherent of a system. I think that this is a side effect of a system where the pros and cons were not weighed very well and adjustments weren't made for things like everybody has to be still how so okay that's not going to work now what do we do yeah i think i don't think that there's an evil cabal that installed a system knowing they would hurt people right like I, I tend to think that um that people have largely chosen to default into these systems because they've given net benefit more than than the other the other options that were available right um but the system itself has, I see capitalism as kind of a system that it, it grows around this function of capital and capital tends to deliver lots of things that, that grow capital tend to deliver a lot of benefits that we like, right? Affluence, lots of clothes, cheap clothing, nice houses. Um, you know, we, we live in a world where more people have clean water, clean food, shelter, warmth, electricity than ever have in human history. Like those are benefits of that system. It's just that there's these externalities that haven't been captured. And we sometimes forget that there's a difference between the output of the system, GDP, or, you know, capital and what we actually want to be concerned about, which is human well-being. And well, so and I think the system is failing to deliver it. And I think also there's a lot of, I think we might be conflating or confusing, not, not us right now, but like in general, uh, like a economic system with hyper consumption and, and the new emergence of, you know, like um, <laughs> of technologies that have benefits, but also huge consequences in terms of 
like affecting people's brains and dopamine levels yeah. where you're <laughs> like, you're, you're really, you know, like you're creating like that system is, shouldn't be mistaken for, for what the other, what, what has made, what has come out of it. Like, I like mm -hmm. to try to keep everything separate again because of the, the baby bathwater thing, you yeah. know, it's like, you know, like we don't have, you don't have to be pro an entire different system, but you can look at some of these tools and go like, maybe like uh, as a global community or as smaller communities to make decisions on how to use the, what comes up, like, you know, like, how do we use these new technologies? Do we use them at all? Do we want them to go? Do we set limits? Like we have no user, we, we have very little um, discussion about how new things affect our local or global economies. Like we just accept them without a lot of discussion. And I don't think that things like that happened as frequently when citizens of a group got together to to look at you know like i'm thinking of like aristotle you know like when 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 politics used to be the the group of the people in an area coming together and sharing their points of view and making a decision like for the collective like so i i just think that there's been a lot of change and we're in exponential change you know like it's not just you know it hasn't been trucking along like it's just the rate yeah. of the rate of what we can do and the rate of waste that has coming based on like all these amazing things is coming with such a huge amount of waste though that those two things have never happened before you've had change but it hasn't had such a um, like in the book i call it it's like your baggage like the baggage the literal waste and stuff that goes behind the system that's making the improvement has never been behind us at this at this amount and at this ever increasing amount. So like, that's really, to me, like, that's the problem that I'm working on, on my end. Yeah. I mean, not for the globe, not for the world, but like working <laughs> on how to, how to understand and like how to make own changes in my life and our community's life so that we're creating a sort of different system. Yeah. This is, this is getting a little bit far afield from, from where I, I kind of intended, but this is kind of right in the heart of a lot of the things that I'm thinking about and talking about, you know, um, my conversations, I don't know if you, have seen some of the conversations I've had with John Rebakey from the University of Toronto. He's a cognitive scientist up there. Um, but there's this idea of the sense-making problem, right? That we we have in, um, that our sense-making apparatus is broken down and that we, we, we have these kind of growing crises. Um, mm -hmm. And we have to, we have to develop a system of sense-making that works better, right? So, I think a lot about the idea that, sorry, now I'm, there's too many, there's too many things. Um, well, let's talk, let's talk about movement. Let's just talk let's, about movement yeah, let's, we, because that's, that's, be a that's, fun conversation that's really the only, that's the only okay. thing that I'm qualified <laughs> to talk about. <laughs> so let's, let's, okay. That sounds good. Um, so I wanted to, so you, we talked about the home. We talked a little bit about culture. Um, let's talk about clothing, right. And the clothes that we put on our kids and how those impact um, the way that they move and how you know, what should people be paying attention to in, in that area? Just, I mean, just straight up how much you can move in the outfit that you put yourself in or put your kids in. So it's like, um, I think when we think of clothes, you know, the idea is like, it has to look, it has to visually express what you mm -hmm. want it to express. It's, it's, you know, a dormant and what you put on your body is, you know, psychologically important to, 
showcasing your authentic self. But I would say that also how you can move in it is also of importance. And so, you know, kids are being put in clothing and the clothing can just simply keep their hips from moving, their their spines from moving, their ankles, their feet from moving, their shoulders from moving. So I just included this, um, a simple test. Like, how do you test an outfit? Like, what should a kid be able to do in, in an outfit before it should, you know, be something that they can wear? Because again, it's one of those things where we might not be realizing that, you know, the kid who's just clumsy, you know, or just doesn't like movement or can't do the monkey bars or get on the thing, or is like really discouraged for movement is often directly related to a physical constraint that you didn't even realize was in the outfit that they were wearing. So again, that's just how, that's just like another way how culture can promote sedentarism because like we don't think about clothes are designed for like really the standing still body. Um, You know, I write about books on feet and shoes. Yeah, mannequin, but I mean, just even like just the, you know, like you're making a material, like you're working with materials. It has to be able to bend and give at certain hinges. So just like to give a more concrete example, we took a hike this weekend with friends and we were talking about shoes and there were some teenagers with us and they're like, I I can't make my, I just go through shoes. Like I'm wearing out a pair of shoes in five months, holes, everything. Yeah. And these are just, um, you know, classic trainers or athletic shoes. And I was like, you have to understand that shoes are designed with the materials, the amounts, the where the seams are, where the bending points are based on really the average amount of movement that someone does. You're not going to spend a lot of money. This is back to capitalism, I guess. Like you're not going to spend a lot of money adding mass to a shoe that doesn't require it. Like you're trying to make a shoe that looks good, but also can withstand um, certain movements. And so what does the average person do? You know, even if you're buying an exercise shoe, it's like three to five mile jog or walk five times a week. The motions, you know, straightforward where they're, they're ranchers. So they're constantly side cutting cattle and they blow out the side of their shoes. Shoes are not meant for that motion. You know, like clothing is not meant for movement. It's meant to be doing what humans in this culture do, which is sit down in it most of the time. So there are sporting clothes, but we don't call non-sporting clothes sitting clothes. We just call them clothes. So you have to realize that there are active clothes and there are inactive clothes. And for many people, most of what they put their kids in and themselves are inactive clothes. You don't even realize it because we just label it for the active, not the inactive. So, um, you know, like there's idea of like, you can find things for children that meet your cultural needs for looking a certain way, if you have them for your family or your community, but they could also be the more dynamic versions so that you're not sacrificing or you're not settling on eliminating their movement for how they look in their clothes. And so I think a lot of times we're doing that without realizing that again, that that's a choice that we're making. They're just clothes. It's really hard to see when you're in that sedentary culture that your clothes are part of the the sedentary scaffolding, not on purpose, but it's just sort of how the industry came to be. And, and so, yeah, so 
luckily there's more active clothes that are coming out and, and there are active clothes for kids, but you just have to know how would I, how would I evaluate a, you know, we're in Seattle, we're in the Pacific Northwest and the number of kids I see in heavy rain boots, they can't balance, they can't walk. They can go and stay dry in a puddle, but that's about it. So when kids are like, I don't know why my kid wants to not, like stay out, like they won't stay out longer. They won't walk four miles with me. And it's like, well, they might just be hurting. Like their gear might not be right for the activity that you want to do because it wasn't designed for that. So in, in the book, you talk about uh, your daughter's desire to adorn herself and the clothes yes. that she chose. And this is something that's come up with, with my kids as well. And um, they love rain boots, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm always like, I want you to have a thing that allows your feet to move. Um, and both my girls want to wear high heels occasionally. And um, my my oldest daughter likes to wear things that are long and frilly and very, and it's like, we're going out to, to run around in the woods. You're going to, you're going <laughs> to get caught on something. Yeah. You're going to rip something. So how, how would you, how have you found success in, you know, with your own children and, and the people you've worked with in kind of negotiating that desire for adornment and to, you know, look a certain way as the culture sort of portrays with, with the need to be functional? Yeah, well, I, I guess just um, lots of discussion. So they, you know, they, they live in my house and they know what I do for a living. They understand the importance of their body moving. Like I regularly have like, show me what you can do that outfit. Can you climb? Can you reach? And as long as I can do the motions, like I'm fine. One trick that we a lot of times do is layer. So if, um, someone wants to wear something extra long or extra bulky, I'm like, that's great. Why don't you put something underneath? So if you want to ditch that halfway through our, you know, eight mile hike through the forest, you can. Um, and they just, I, I find that sort of like the W sitting by putting them in a lot of situations in what they were doing to see how that didn't work out. I can call on that experience. Like did that dress or that pair of shoes work on the last thing we did? No. What did you, what would you have been better? Okay. Well, why don't you grab that? We'll throw it in our backpack or, you know, so I, I let them just through experiencing all the different things we do in clothes and make sure we do those regularly that they learn how to dress themselves. And then also, you know, like the more creative thing is, okay, we need something frilly and it's not even frilly. And it's not only my daughter, like I got a kid who likes cloaks and like big, you know, big, <laughs> you know, and you know, like big cost, like they, they like a lot of costumes and, and frankly, who doesn't want to wear a cloak like through a forest? Like, like they want that. So it's just, you just learn, like, how heavy is that? Are you going to carry that the entire time and like let them deal with some of the consequences and know that part of my outing is going to be less comfortable for me because I have to parent them through them learning. So like, that's, again, that goes to like a lot of the decisions of like, you have to wear this or you have to do this is to make it easier on me so that I don't have to be with them as they go through that learning experience for themselves. So I try to remove myself from sort of that authoritarian and just be like, you're going to wear that. Great. Let's see how it goes. And then they go and they have an experience. And then I have to deal with their unhappiness with the experience. 
And I don't have to say, I told you so. I could just be like, oh, bummer. Yeah, those shoes did not work for that. Okay, well, we're going to go climb that. You can stay here or you can take off your shoes and try it barefoot if you want to do it. So like, that's more my style of parenting is let them get out and do the thing and be a good reminder later on. It's like, how did that work for you last time? Like, did those do well in wet? And then they'll be like, oh yeah, no, not so much. Okay. I'm going to get something else. You know, like that's my, that's my solution. Uh, yeah. I think, you know, it can be more uncomfortable in the short term, but hopefully more empowering in the long term. Well, it's just, I mean, like, that's what, that's like, I think we've sort of forgotten that like failing or like negative experiences is part of how you learn. Like, I think this generation of parents is like really like trying to set up all positive, no fail experiences. And then thinking that they've learned how to, how to do it when really they're just sort of mimicking, like to do what's being set. So like, I'm a big fan of, yeah, we went out for the six hours and you were totally wet. And one, you got the benefit of knowing that you can be just fine out there. Totally wet. You're uncomfortable. And like my ears are uncomfortable helping you deal with your own discomfort. But I know that now you have actually learned like that process and, and also learn that you don't have to be comfortable all the time. Like there's so many valuable lessons. So that's my, I mean, like, again, like I'm not a parenting expert, but that's like, to me, I think that that's in the end, how you have like more, more grit and also just more self-taught lessons. No one's teaching you. You're, you're sort of teaching yourself. I'm just providing experiences is all. Yeah. So I wanted to, to go back to the house for a second, because you said something that I really liked, which is you, you want to sort of, you want to think about how you can take your house, your, your home activities outdoors yeah. and bring aspects of the outdoors indoors. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about some strategies to do both of those. Well, okay. So simple, like we just don't use outdoor space very much. And most homes have some sort of outdoor space and it doesn't have to be your own yard, your own, you don't have to have a backyard or a front yard. If you have a patio or stairs, um, if you have a neighborhood, like I consider your neighborhood as part of your home, home space, like your home turf is outside of just the walls of your home. So it's this idea of how do you do more out there? So it's simple. You were talking about like, we're just going to eat a meal outside. We're just going to take our bodies 10 feet over and put ourselves outside because a bunch of more movement happens once you're there because humans are very, like all other animals, we move in response to the environments that we are in. It's a, it's a reaction. Our movement is a reaction to the environment. Um, and so you want to be putting yourself into an environment where, where you get movement to happen. You have to do the work to get yourself out. But once you're there, it's sort of like a catalyst for more movement. Um, And another thing, just like, um, you know, getting out of your car and walking different places, going outside and playing games, you know, is a good way of doing more things outside. If kids are doing homework, setting up a homework station outside, like anything that you're doing inside, even reading, like I will, we have a hammock outside and if a kid's reading inside, I'm like, yeah, you need to go do that outside. If you want to sit there and do that, you can do it outside. There's a, there's, you need the natural light. It's better for your eyes. It's just, you end up reading less once you're outside because there's more stimulating things pulling you. 
And then also similarly to that greenhouse, like, so yes, you need to take the plants outside of the greenhouse to get them used to the outside world. But also remember we were moving plants in the greenhouse. And so how do you make your greenhouse more dynamic? I'm a big fan of like jumping. Kids need a lot of jumping. Grownups need it too, but kids are really setting their, the, the you're, you are setting your adult bone mass and shape in childhood. There's no going back and getting what you didn't get in childhood. That's why it's so important that kids get moving is because you can't redo your childhood as far as bone goes. So we're like a lot of houses have like no jumping rules. You know, we don't want you to jump and we don't get hurt, but you can have a methodical safe place for jumping. Like you can put a box up and like, this is your jumping zone. So you can jump and make this higher and like, let them do that. And jumping, I think we think of as like an an outside natural movement, but it can be brought into the house. It can be be brought into the house. Well, it can even be brought into the house in a non disruptive way. Like I think that I have, when I need to go into the zone that you're talking about, the creative still working zone, I have found that I can build a movement space where they know exactly the type of movement that they're going to do there. And I can get myself a free hour because they're just going to go try that movement thing again and again. So that would be an example of bringing it in our indoor monkey bars, you know, something to hang on inside the house or climb gives kids it will it's one it's making that environment trigger more of these complex movements that we want again these skeleton or body defining movements that they need but they can't get whenever they're home with us which is a lot of the time last year it was even more so right so so it's like what movements does your home offer can you bring some of those outdoor movements inside by making minimal changes like i'm not saying that anyone has to build an indoor, you know, monkey set down the hallway, but you can definitely be adding like just one day I taped X's like all over the floor and like, Oh, you have to jump to all those X, like just some surprise thing in the morning. And, and then you take it away at the end of the day or at the end of the two days when it's boring and then you bring it out in a month and then it's fresh again. So it's like simple, inexpensive, but still thoughtful ways of, of, of encouraging movement second, like uh, encouraging the reaction to movement to how you've modified the environment. Yeah. I I love that. And I I was particularly intrigued, uh, hearing you talk about, um, about bone loading and jumping, um, as a parkour athlete, obviously that's a particular interest to me. Um, and I also find that people are very afraid of kids jumping Mm -hmm. and I find it really interesting how children have a sort of innate drive to just take big drops. And this is, it's, it's just, you know, like coming up in the parkour community, you know, we were starting to, you know, we all started jumping off things and getting knee injuries. Right. And then, and then it was like, well, is taking drops safe? Like, oh, oh we should be strength training. Um, and then the idea was we, we got this idea that you have to have like a two times body weight squat before you can do plyometrics. And then like depth jumps are super high level, super dangerous. Um, and then watching little like three-year-olds just like climb up on top of something well above their height and just taking the drop Yeah. and seeing that they have this inherent drive to do it. And, and I've seen it over and over again. I mean, it's happened in our own household, like the, my, you know, 
the kids were jumping off of their bed and my wife was like, no, stop. And I came up there and was like, well, no, I think they're okay. Like, go ahead. You can <laughs> like, show me how you do that. Mm-hmm. Um, or let's, let's do this slightly lower jump. Show me if you can do that safely. Then you can go to the next jump that you will want to do. Um, and so I think that that's such an important message that it's actually necessary for the child to, to do that. And I look at the parkour community and some of the kids now who started when they were eight years old and who are now 17 years old, and they can, they can drop 20 feet and land on their legs and bounce up and be fine. And I think we just, we don't recognize how much we're taking away when we prevent kids from exploring that. And just how robust a human can become given the right, right. The right inputs. Well, and I think a lot of what I do, you know, outside of Grow Wild is just teaching about like how movement works, just general, like just the general principles of movement. Because I think once you get them, you're like, this makes so much more sense. Like I can figure out how to move um, through the world now. But I do think that one thing that's underappreciated with people is that for, for many people coming to movement in their 20s and 30s, is they're often coming to movement on a sedentary body. And the difference that that is physiologically than coming to movement when a body has always moved, that the structures, the tissues are different. Um, So it's just, it's just that, I mean, like, that's really why I wrote Grow Wild. It's like, we need, people need to understand what kids need, because I think, you know, a lot of the movement community is like, what do I do with people who are 40? And it's like, well, it depends. Were they always movers? Are they new to movement? Because it's hard to take a bunch of bodies that have never moved before. And then, you know, they see this thing that they want to do that's amazing and challenging and they do it and they're injured and you create a cycle where whether you meant to do it or not, the side effect is people start seeing exercise or movement, especially, you know, some of the more challenging movements, they see them as injury making you know like it just gets put into like you can't wear minimal shoes those are injury making it's like well there needs to be we haven't hardened our bodies off like we went from the greenhouse and you have to keep in mind that we are a full-grown tree in a greenhouse we went from being a full-grown tree and then tried to plant ourselves in the soil without a root system without anything and then we get knocked over and we don't realize how that growth period is really so protective of us as we get older. So like, that's why this book. And so jumps, yes, people like kids. So one kids are, have a lot of cartilage, like them jumping is different than us jumping. Like the literal way that they deal with the forces is different. You know, like the, there's a softness, there's an impact. There's a, there's just a way, um, that the physiology supports a lot of jumping around that age at a particular volume. And it is very innate. It's just like, I got to do this. You know, it's like, it's a, there's an internalized program for exploring the world through jumps again and again and again. Um, And I would say that you'd want to cultivate that. You want to cultivate your children's reflexes to jump and, and hang, hang on things but we tend to want to discourage it because it's unsafe. But I think in the long run, it's, it's only unsafe if the environment is unsafe. So like, I think I talked about hanging in the book, you know, 
we don't want kids to hang in the house because we don't have things that are safe for hanging. They're climbing up, they're on the handlebar of the oven and it rips off and they fall. Like we went to a hotel when my daughter was really young and she climbed up on something and pulled the whole thing over in the bathroom, some glass metal rack. Like they don't have like, no, we've never had so many unfixed climbing things. Like that's, what's unnatural about our play like our environments is like you know if something's fixed and climbable like you're going to go up it but these are all just furniture things that pull over easily because they were not designed just like shoes weren't designed perhaps for you to cut to the side these climbing things that kids see as climbing things i'm looking at a rack behind the computer that's why my eyes are going like this like they're meant to set things on they -hmm. never thought like everyone would know better than to pull it towards you because it has no resistance to that type of movement. So like, that's why jumping and, and you can scale them. I have a, I have a great video of my daughter who's always been very tenacious in trying to learn something until she's got it. Like she just hammers at it till it's done trying to learn a jump. And like, she like got up on something and she went to the edge and looked and like, and she like jumped off and like, she just came and she just did it again and again and again until she could figure out how to land with her knees. And it's just, it's like literacy. It's just the same thing. Like they are trying to learn how to read the world and, and, and read it with their whole body, not just their eyes. I think we're like thinking like we're supposed to be reading the world with our eyes and seeing everything. It's like, you got to read it with your knees and you have to read it with your hips and you have to read it with your bones. You have to read it with your feet. Your hands have to read it. Like you have to be able to read it with your shoulder so that when I look out, I know what body sentences I can make in an environment, right? Like that comes with fluency of just knowing, oh, that I can tell by that deadness of that branch that it won't hold me. But a lot of kids who are not fluent in movement go outside and they still have that drive, but maybe they weren't allowed that developmental period in it. And they don't necessarily know how to safely read the environment and then they get hurt and it sort of reinforces the message of see movement's not safe every time I you know I never let my kid out to move because every time I do they get hurt you know so it's like well there is a there's a volume thing again there's a there's a you have to know how to land a jump like we'll go places and our kids will be flying off tall things some other kid will see it and want to go try it because they're a kid they're 10, they're eight, they're seven. I should be able to do this. It's possible. Like kids' minds just sort of are very peer driven of like, I can do that because they did that, but they didn't have seven other years. They never went through the stepwise strengthening of their joints. And then I will intervene. I'll be like, let's start with something like you. Let's start with something low. Like show me what you can do on something low. Get the, How's that feel on your knees? You know, they don't know how to use their hands. They don't know how to land with their weight in a way that doesn't push them forward to their face. So they could get those skills on something small and then they can do it. So it's, it's the same thing. You gotta, we need primers. This is like, I was hoping Grow Wild would be a movement primer for families where they could figure out how to build up to yeah. robust movement. That's a beautiful idea. It, this, this reminds me of another subject that I wanted to get into with you, which is the last time we talked, um, we talked about this idea of like, what would be an required daily amount of different <laughs> movement things oh i don't know, like, I don't know. <laughs> and and that was your answer then um and it's a good answer right it's, it's great it's, i'm uh, consistent yeah um <laughs> but since then you've you've introduced this activity tracker right yes 
And yes. I thought that'd be a great subject for us to, to discuss a little bit because I think it's a great way for people to look at, yeah. um, even if we don't know how often you need to be in hip extension or you know thighs back, um, we can recognize what, what it looks like within the ecology of our overall behavior and start to compare it to what the lifestyle we might want to lead or might, might look like an, a natural movement would look like. So talk a little bit about this activity tracker that you, you designed and how people might utilize it. I'm so happy. I don't know if you can see it on my face, but I'm so happy because, because that activity tracker is really important. It's, I think it's a really important step to going like, Oh, there is like to, you know, if you're looking at movement, like food, like nutrition, it's Mm -hmm. like, what would I be looking for as a dip? Like what are separate nutrients? Like right now our nutrients are cardio strength and flexibility. And like, that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about where are the cells moving in your body for one, right? Like there's, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different levels at which you could evaluate this, but the activity tracker is like, okay, you, we all, and you, you can use this, whether you have kids or not kids, if you can do it for yourself, it doesn't matter. We are all doing just with quotes around the word doing every minute of the day, or you could say we're all moving. Well, I see as a biomechanist, we're all moving, but people living lives probably organize less by movement and more like, what are they doing? I'm working, I'm schooling, I'm commuting, I'm cleaning. You know, like you look more, you think more in terms of the activities that you're doing, which is fine. Um, so then my question is, well, what are the activities of the day? So the activity tracker is a gra- as a chart where you down one side of it, write down the things that you do, let's just say in a day, an average day, you can fill it in for a week if you wanted to. Um, So you fill that in. And then across the top are what are the movements that are utilized or created by each of those activities? And then you fill in the chart. So, and it's not only arms and legs, it's like bone loading. It's, um, I, think in terms of like, people will say cardio, but I think in more of like, are you using your full range of motion of your heart and your lungs? So it could be really consistent with ranges of motion. Um, do, do most of your activities have your eyes on a screen? Okay. Well then we know something about the muscles in your eyes and the ranges of motion that they're in. They're in a very limited range of motion. So you fill in this chart. And then when you're left, you see, uh, like if this was a diet, you see sort of the holes or the nutrients that you're missing. And then it's like, okay, well, what activities would move you in the ways that you're not currently getting? And then one, can you add in those activities? Can you swap some of those activities for other activities that are kind of moving you in the same way as you're getting too much of perhaps? Or the other way of using it is, because we're not all activity malleable. Like with kids and activities, you're usually as a parent choosing, oh, I really want my you know, kid to go to this music lesson. Oh, I want my kids to play this sport. Oh, I want my kid to like learn chess or they're spending this much time gaming. We think of kids and what they're doing in their free time as activities. But another way of looking at it would be, how can I take the activity that they're already doing and add more movement to it by just changing some element, moving it outside, um, bringing in other people. Like maybe you got a, you got a kid, like we have these 
friends who love playing street hockey. These kids were just playing pickup street hockey. Well, one of the parents of one of the kids is like, wow, you're really good at this. And like, we're going to sign you up for a team and like an official sport. So took their kids and put them in that direction. So then now the kids actually stopped enjoying the pick. They, 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 they didn't enjoy the lesson and the structured event as much as they like just playing in the neighborhood with their friends. And then the friends couldn't play anymore because half the team was gone now doing the lesson. So it's like, if your kid really likes something, does it have to be in what I would call a um, very structured activity or is there an unstructured way of doing it, which I know that you like play a lot. So it's this idea of we're really kind of overdosing on really structured activities without a lot of um, just free, like freedom in all the ways that it would be freedom to a kid, like lack of adult supervision, freedom to make rules, freedom to play as long or as short as they wanted, you know, to, to influence the, the, the way that they're playing. And so I think sometimes if you're like, oh, my kid really loves street hockey. So therefore it's got to be this lesson. It's like, well, maybe there's a way that you can convert some of it into play. Like maybe there's a way you can remove some of the structure of it. So it's not to say that you have to change all of the activities. It's that the more you understand about the variables that each activity holds, the more you can see that through making simple changes, you can increase the nutrient density of that activity for that child. And then again, ultimately for the parent, because the parent the kids are getting more of what they need during that bout of time. So it doesn't fall on the parent to then again, figure out how to make up, like you're not, you as a parent are not responsible for facilitating every need of your child every minute of the day. Like they're getting it from a lot of different ways, but I think we actually are sort of over-influencing it without realizing it by going to all structure, you know, like we're trying to make it easier or maybe that's just the way society in certain areas works. But I, again, I think it's influencing the outcomes that we're seeing with kids moving less, kids playing less, kids doing less outside, and then kids doing less with other kids, kids doing less with people in their own neighborhood. It's all sort of, as you were talking about earlier, it's like we're specializing we're, with, without realizing it, we're specializing in doing like such a narrow range of things, mostly by ourselves, that there's you know going to be consequences to that, whether we see them now or not. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to, to talk with you about play in particular. Um, the, the specialization thing is really, I think people are looking for safety, right? If you're, mm-hmm. if your kids have a coach and they're, if they're doing street hockey in a structured coached environment, you feel like that's safer than them organizing it by themselves on the street, either just in the kids playing themselves or, People are worried about strangers interacting with their children, which might happen outside. And you know, I was thinking about that as you're speaking about my own kids, right? And like, my son's just about to start uh, football. He's going to play flag football. And you know, if there was a group of neighborhood kids who were getting together and playing flag football, then I would happily let him just do that. But the thing is, because all the kids are in these structured sports, that's where you find other kids. Yeah, And so it becomes harder and harder to have an ecology of this free unstructured play. But yeah, for me, um, 
play is one of those containers, one of those things that is, is extraordinarily important in understanding what motivates children to move and really what motivates human beings to move as a, um, yeah, as a, as a movement education system. And so I remember the last time, I remember when we met in person, uh, God, 10 years ago or something like that. That was a, that was a conversation we were having where you, there was that, that, that word wasn't as important for you, I guess. And I, play. I, I uh, play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I looked at, you know, at the end of the book here, grow wild, I looked in the index and play is an indexed as one of the words for somebody to search for. So it's at the beginning of the chapter on activities, right? You talk about play as one of those activities, but I have this, this sense that, that children have an inherent drive to play and that that's how they engage in movement education on their own and that they're seeking out stuff that's relevant to them and that that is coded as play. And that in fact, in, in adults, that's, uh, that continues in human beings more so than in any other animal. And it's still a system that I think we can leverage a lot more to get people moving. So I was curious how you're thinking about play has evolved and its relationship towards building a culture that's more movement friendly. Yeah. I mean, I don't really speak to play all that often. Um, I think like I, so like I tend to go with unstructured movement. Like I, to me, that would be probably as close to play as I'm going to get because, because I know that there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of people focused on play and the research of play. So I can leave that play discussion to them and those nuances for me, what I'm really trying to get across in my overall work is um, a category of movement that I would call labor. So there are like, for many humans, so the, so the, like, I'm, I'm really, I think of things more of an evolutionary perspective. So is there play? I mean, like play and evolution are, I think in both in your taglines, right? So, so, (laughs) so I, but I, but I think that again, we have to watch what we bring to what we see kids doing. So, so if you look at play for many cultures, play is a period of time where, Kids are engaging in, um, like, they're, they're sort of free from responsibility. So play to me is a freedom from responsibility. You're not, the outcome of whatever you're doing for play, you are not, no one's depending on that, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But I see that we actually are dependent on what children, especially like I'm thinking of traditional cultures, hunter-gatherer cultures, what we are collectively dependent on as a group of the outcome of those children's play is that they get the skills of what they're choosing to do for play that will go on to contribute to the overall group. And so the play of children in let's say like more traditional communities is the child version of what the grown-ups are doing. It's really specific, the types of play that's happening. Now, of course, that's what they're being exposed to do. Um, but I would say like in that intact environment, you're getting, you are, you know, you're learning how to fight. You're learning, you know, you're learning how to take the punch. Like when I see my kids fighting, 
I'm like, I'm not worried about you guys fighting. You're just really trying to get your fighting muscles. Like you're doing it when you're young and you don't hit hard and you're compassionate about the person you're with. And even when you're hitting, what I see is that skill sort of emerging of like understanding what physical conflict feels like so that you're, that you're just aware of it and in a, a safe environment. You're learning about food and cooking and moving and, and all the things. So again, remember that my overall point is that the movements that we evolved with are the ones that we still require. Even though the context is different, we're still sort of dependent on those moves. But it, it is also, I don't focus on it so much, but it is also that survival still requires a lot of those human movements being done, we're just not the ones doing it. So you mentioned clothes, like we all love cheap free clothes, mm -hmm. but, but someone is still making clothes. There are still people who are making clothes. So for me, I wear clothes as a grown up, but my child doesn't see clothing as any sort of skill set for them to learn. Play, we, we've removed making clothes as play. Now I grew up with a grandmother who made all of our clothes and her children's clothes and all her own clothes. So we used to play sewing machine all the time because playing sewing machine, um, playing food processing, playing grocery store, like those were things, those were systems that we were exposed seeing. To. We were exposed to, but we were also exposed to the making of. Like, yeah. Right. So, so I think that play has sort of, become focused on the non late, like that kids should really be spending their time only in play because kids have always sort of only been in play, but their play had a purpose that eventually had them contribute and had a skill set that included the things that they would need to be able to do. So I have made like, for us, like I would still put in going out and picking apples as play. Now, when we're out picking apples, they're climbing trees and they're throwing apples at each other and they're being generally disruptive and not really contributing to the overall yeah. gathering of apples. But you know what? They w went out with us. They did carry stuff. They picked, you know, they ate them. They filled their own bellies with apples, which is another hallmark of play, right? The kid is sort of meeting their own needs a little bit for the first time, but this adult still has to supplement that. So I think for me, that's really what I have chosen to focus on is the, we could call it responsible play or play where they are learning, they're, they're, they're dabbling in responsibilities in a playful, unstructured, responsibility-free way, but it ends up moving them in a way that not only got them the movement, but made them overall able to contribute to society in a way where more individuals are meeting more of their own needs rather than looking to so many other people to meet their needs. So, so again, it's not, it's, so to me, play has been used to mean other things besides the situation of it. It was really just the responsibility, free movement, unstructured part, which I appreciate. And I think that children need, but for me, I've chosen to focus more on what the movements that I call labor, moving for the things that you need, but in a playful, re responsibility-free way. But then again, with that caveat of saying, you actually are responsible for learning these skills. Like, we mm -hmm. just don't, you're not responsible at the end of the day for what you 
produce, but you're responsible at the end of your juvenile period for being able to move to being a, a more capable adult. Yeah. I mean, I think that's pretty aligned in a lot of ways, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm, you know, my, my perspective is deeply evolutionary, right? And I can yeah. see that, that, so what's interesting to me about play in, in the problem of, of physical culture is that people are, people are told they need to exercise um, or move and mostly they don't. And right. it's because it's viewed as, as labor, it's viewed as drudgery. And the motivation system we tend to, to try to leverage is something like shame, right? You're, you're, you're going to look bad if you don't. You're do lazy. Die, or, yeah, right. right? Um, but I see children have this intrinsic drive to move. And it's like that, that movement that's inherently enjoyable, that seems like a, this rich source of getting people to, to dig down into these things. And, um, but I can see also that play as a drive can be hijacked, right? Gambling is play, right? Um, I don't know. I don't know if I'd put play in gambling, but I think but I'm not play related hmm. um, or video games, right? It's, it's a system of intrinsic motivation and we can tap into that system. And, and you're, you're talking about, about reward system. Like you're talking about the brain pathway of reward. Well, there's specific reward associated with play. Like mm-hmm. uh, Yak Pengsep was a neuroscientist who discovered specifically the neuro, neurocircuitry of reward around rough and tumble play in particular. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that when you're playing a video game and you are feel, feel rewarded for smashing somebody, right? Or shooting mm-hmm. somebody in a first person shooter, that's what you're tapping into. But you're not getting all of the movement nourishment sure. you get when you're actually moving and playing outdoors. Right. And so we're trying to give people this evolutionary perspective and get people to play. But one of the roles of play is that it increases behavioral flexibility. So it's not just that you learn the skill, but you learn the capacity to learn skills. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons why I tend to, to think this is a really important aspect of the conversation around natural movement is how do we understand what that was? And when we look at, when we look at hunter foragers, the way that children play is basically just replicating the behavior of the adults, right? Mm-hmm. The little boys start shooting at bow and arrows and they're shooting at lizards when they're three years old. And then when they're 12, they start shooting at deer. And by the time they're 15, 16, they're active contributors to the household. And often there's, my understanding is in the language, there's often not even a distinction between adult work and children's play. No. And if we look at our society, you can see that, um, that we continue to play hunter forager things because they're intrinsically rewarding, right? People hunt and fish and gather because it's intrinsically rewarding. So when we talk about going out and um, mushroom picking or gathering, which I know is something that you're, you're a big fan of as a highly stacked activity, mm-hmm. we could also think of that as a form of play and a form mm-hmm. of play that has this type of output that we're looking for. So yeah, I don't know. I just thought it'd be interesting to, to explore those ideas with you. Well, I mean, I, I think, again, it's just about, it becomes about what's definition. And for me, when I go out and get mushrooms, it is play because I can just buy mushrooms or I can just buy a cheeseburger at McDonald's. Like I don't, there, so I think that a lot of our definitions about how things are and what things are, there's a bias that perhaps we're not seeing is because they, they usually relate to the choice of being able to do that thing. It's not the activity itself because there's other people who are doing the exact same motion 
for mushrooms, but I don't know if it would qualify as play in that perspective because it's not choice. It's not a chosen activity. It's a survival activity. That's something that I'm interested in as well, because I think that a lot of our perspective about what is play comes from not moving for what we need. And then, so like, I wouldn't put exercise and labor in the same category necessarily because exercise is a, it is a, um, what is it called? It is a, it's a, oh my gosh, it is a sleep leisure occupation. It's leisure. It's a leisure time. Exercise is a leisure time, physical activity. So it's been, it's been set aside in the literature to know, like, always keep in mind that exercise is for those who have leisure time. So whether they feel like it's a labor or I have to do, it technically is not. It is something that you are choosing to do or not. doesn't mean that you don't feel like it's drudgery or feel like you, like you're having to suffer through it. What makes that different than labor is the choice, Mm -hmm. the position that you are in overall. So like, to me, those things, especially when you start to work in, in understanding the great, when you, to understand the impacts of sedentarism are on a very wide global population that lives in many different circumstances. I like to hold those things separate because, because those words have much more importance given like different lifestyles or situations. So, yeah, but, but, but I think what we're saying in the end is if people could remove the drudgery they feel that like if they can remove the feeling that to move is drudgery to have to move is, is a negative, right. Then, then it would be so much easier. So you're like, if you could just come up with unstructured, um, fun ways of, you know, meeting your physical activity requirements, that isn't, it's still exercise in that way, but it's not like, well, it's not, it doesn't have to be repetitive. It doesn't have to have a mode. It doesn't have to have, you know, these set times like that. It could be brought to you in a lot of different forms and more people would be on board and you would be able to get your daily physical activity to increase. Once you realize that there was many different ways to approach it, I think is what you're saying and play or playfulness and just being, you know, a body rolling around on the earth like feels good and is a source of joy and it does, it does not have to be drudgery. I think has always been sort of what you're bringing to the table, letting other people say like, you can have fun doing this. It's not something you have to suffer through. Yeah. How do we tap into the motivation that gets us getting the movement that we need to be healthy? Um, uh, that's, that's, that's at the fundamental of, of what I'm interested in. I realize that we're nearing the end of the time, uh, that we scheduled. I have one more question for you. If you have sure. the time, um, sure. because I think that in, in some ways, you know, that play perspective, it, it, it's open. I think it's a very powerful lever. Um, but there's something that I, I think that there's another layer, which, which is related, which is what you're talking about, which is where we start to think about how the way that we move um, sort of impacts responsibility. And I've been thinking about this idea of, you know, there's this idea of the movement culture, right? We have a culture of movement, or you could say that within any culture, there is a culture of specific movements that, they, that people do. 
Um, and we've lost a lot of that. We don't have the street games that we used to have, or people don't get together and bowl. They don't get together and engage in, in the physical activities that we used to. So we need to recover that. But I also had this idea that a lot of what you're talking about is how do we get more movement into our culture? How do we make all the other little things that we're doing involve more movement, our clothing, our homes, mm -hmm. our things. And I think that this is, um, that there's something very deep about that, about that shift of frame from, I need to have a place for movement in my culture to, I need to colonize my culture with movement. Um, and also such that it changes the way that we are behaving. So it's more ethical and more responsible. This is something that I think that is it really at the heart of what I see from your work is I don't just want to, to move differently for my own health. I want to move differently for the health of my community and the health of the people around me. So I wanted to, to offer that to you as a, as a final kind of theme to, to share your ideas around. Well, and I think it's always important to remember, that, again, that evolutionary background is this is nothing new. This is really a restorative practice, right? So again, we are talking about a capitalistic economy. This is how a traditional economy works. A traditional economy only works when everyone's moving, right? Because, because you basically have to exchange labor for the thing that you're going to get that now you are going to share or trade with others. Like everyone is moving and no one's really no one's really specialized. There are certain smaller specialties. Maybe it's maybe it's not that they're not specializing. It's just the the level of specialization isn't equal then and now. Because because I think one of the things that's also interesting about more traditional societies is the knowledge that's held by a group is pretty much the same for every person. Mm -hmm. Like what they know about is about is the same. It's the things that it takes. So with our specialization has really become a specialization of knowledge where we know a lot more things than what it takes to just to have a small group. Like there's someone who knows how to build a space shuttle. There's someone who knows how to, the, how a toilet works, like all these things that we depend on all the time, but have, no idea how it works, like would be very much at risk. So like, so we're, we're knowledge specialized. And that's, I just think that what you get is just the, the replication of that specialization. There's movement specialized and, and job specialized. Like we just are really become very niche in our participation and understanding of the world. We're participating in a very big collection of everyone who's specialized. So it feels very nuanced, but at the end of the day, most people don't know anything except the one little thing that they know a lot about. And we depend on each other in that way. So I think that's a big. Um... Can I speak to that for just one second real quick? Sure. There's, it's an it's a th important theme. And I think there's a really funny quote about that. We're moving f faster and faster to a world where everybody knows, uh, er somebody knows everything about nothing, right? That's right. Yeah. I've, that's an academic quote. Yes. Like we, we're going to get to the point where we know everything about nothing. So, but, but I think that collectively what happens is like, I, I depend on a lot of other people's knowledge, but I'm like, not really able to like in this world that I live in, I could not live in this way without everything sort of yeah. working exactly as it has worked before up until this point. Um, but, but to the, to the, to your point, yes, I think that 
there is a direct relationship between individual sedentarism. And, and by that, I don't mean do you exercise or not? Are you able to move or not? Like, cause there's a range of ability, but I mean more like how, what, what are you, the motions that you're doing, how many of them are for the things that you in fact need? I mean, like that's the side effect of industrialization is like a machine could do a lot of the movements for us and someone standing and operating the machine who had to specialize their daily movement to this to operate a machine that could do a bunch of other stuff. And now this person is stuck here doing this and the machine is doing a bunch of the other motions. And then now there's a whole bunch of people who don't have to do this or the motions to get whatever is on the other side of the machine. And so what you get is you get, I mean, like socially, there's someone who's stuck doing this, right? Like who's just stuck doing some high volume. I, and I just want to throw it in there. Like we're a sedentary culture, but, but, but this culture isn't America. This culture isn't even really the globe because there's a lot of people inside what I would say is those other cultures who move all day long. We have quite a bit of active people that do the motions for those not moving, but even they are not receiving the health benefits of moving all day because they're just doing one motion, right? They, they too have had to specialize into the one motion of pulling the thing out of the ground, the one motion to push the button. So, so like everyone, some people are specializing to not move, some specializing to move one part of their body in a repetitive way, uh, another person, and maybe that way is just with their shoulder. The other person is specializing in just moving their back. And so like all of the movement systems are sort of off. So by, by, by doing more movements for the things that you need, you sort of free up. I mean, if you just want to look at it as a personal benefit, you make your body better and you are free from depending 100% on the infrastructure, which allows it to change in some way, or maybe in a capitalistic society would force it to change, right? Like, like you, you would, you would allow or even initiate change by changing your priorities or, or what you want to see come out at the end. Um, and then just like ecologically, the infrastructure takes a lot of energy, right? So like active transportation, the idea of, does anyone think of walking to work as play? I think, yes. I don't think it would fit everyone's definition of play, but until you go from driving to work to walking to work and you realize, wow, I get a lot more joy in my life by walking to work, is that considered play? I don't know. If, is, it, is it gonna reward you in some way where you're like, I had to figure out how to make this happen. You know, it's like a game. Like, can you shift the pieces in your life around enough to reward yourself with, through movement and some physical activity? I don't know if it would qualify. You can put that into the play supermind and yeah, see yeah. what see what kicks out on the other end. But yeah, I mean, I do think it's about responsibility. But but I think that the it's not to take away the individual benefit, but it I think it makes us a more responsibility more responsible society overall when we recognize all that comes with sedentarism specifically not moving 
in the community ways that we that we used to like i think that we do have a perception because again we're so movement averse that labor meant drudgery and i think in this modern context for those laboring in that repetitive way it could very well be drudgery um, and feel oppressive but in many traditional cultures getting together to do some big harvest or movement was not drudgery it was like you were, there was a i'm sure a gratitude for the food or the harvest that you were having or at least feeling fortunate if there wasn't gratitude it was how you were celebrating with other people so i i think that a lot of our perceptions about what how bad labor is comes to do with this specialized labor situation in which we see people who are unable to do anything else you know like so so that's yeah labor that's my perspective community. on movement labor removed from diversity of movement labor removed from right. nature choice in, in, in labor of movement uh, removed from choice yeah yeah um i think sometimes that modernity is a problem of of overuse injuries and underuse injuries right yeah. we're all suffering both physically and psychologically in many ways um i think that's a wonderful place to to, to stop for the day uh, Katie, real pleasure. And um, anyone who's looking for you find, can find you on nutritiousmovement.com. Uh, the book is Grow Wild, uh, Nutritious Movement. You're also on Instagram. You have a newsletter, anything else people should know about? Uh, yeah, like uh, you go to my website and you can send up for the newsletter there. You can, okay. you can pretty much find anything there. Cool. So yeah, thank you. Thanks, Rafe. Hey, you reached the end of another Evolve Move Play podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, if you want to be involved in the conversation, please consider joining us in our new membership subscription so you can get access to question and answers with our live speakers once a month, question and answers with me once a month, and a dedicated forum to discuss everything going on in the podcast, as well as a general discussion of movement on our general movement forums. If you're interested in that, make sure to check out the link below, get signed up, and join a part of our membership community. If you can't join our membership community right now, it's still always helpful if you can like, share, and subscribe, and even hit that bell and get notifications for upcoming Evolve Move Play podcasts. But audios for now, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.